Well, good morning and uh, welcome to our event today this morning uh, in the Solvay Bibliothek. It's my great uh, pleasure on behalf of the entire Brügel team to, uh, to welcome you today uh, to this event uh, with uh, Christine Lagarde, who will um, give the curtain raiser speech um, ahead of the IMF uh, meetings, IMF World Bank meetings next week in Washington. And um, before giving the floor to the managing director, um, let me uh, give the floor to uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, um, our chairman of Bruegel and um, uh, former ECB president to welcome and introduce our keynote speaker today. Thank you very much, uh, Guntram, indeed. I am very impressed uh, by this room, by this library, and by the audience. It's very, very flattering uh, for Bruegel to have had the uh, acceptation of uh, Christine Lagarde. Christine, uh, I remember the joke that we shared once on the Prime Minister of the UK being in uh, Moscow and asking uh, to the <laughs> Secretary General of the Communist Party uh, whether the economy was uh, correct and so forth, to qualify in one word. And uh, the word was good, which was uh, very, very surprising for the Prime Minister of the UK. So he said, could you elaborate a little bit in two words? And in two words, said the Secretary General of the Communist Party, I would say, no good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have to say that there are periods of times in economic history when being the good and no good uh, qualification, you can hesitate from time to time. Everything seems very good and then you have the eruption of a dramatic crisis. And uh, everything might seem very, very bad, obviously, and fortunately, there is a, a more promising uh, change. Whether we are in a good situation or in no good situation, Christine, is uh, the privilege, uh, to know that, is the privilege of a very few uh, responsible uh, individuals in the world, and you are one of them, because your job is precisely to make a synthesis uh, at the level of the planet. Uh, and uh, that is perhaps more demanding and challenging than uh, it has ever been. So again, it's an immense privilege. We have to, uh, to benefit from your own diagnosis, your own vision. I uh, must confess I multiply the privilege because I had the privilege to see you in Washington recently. Uh, as I did in Washington, I think it's um, something which uh, is my duty to remind all of us what is the kind of experience that Christine has. She's been Minister of Agriculture, Minister of Industry and Commerce, Minister of Finance. She has been the chair of a Chicago-based international law firm, Baker and McKenzie. She was the first ever female chairperson of a major law firm first ever female Minister of Finance for all G8 countries, not only for France, all G8 countries. And uh, she was the first, of course, ever female MD of the IMF. So I don't mention your swimming uh, successes. <laughs> and I welcome you here, Christine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jean-Claude and, uh, and Gontran. Good morning to, uh, to all of you. 
as clearly when Jean-Claude and I meet somewhere in the world, you will believe that we exchange jokes. And, uh, and we do, because sometimes it's also good to have a little, little bit of humor when things are dark. And I was, I was listening to your introduction, Jean-Claude, I was reminded of one of your jokes, which is after a very, very complimentary introduction of you by somebody else. You came to the podium and you said, well, when I listen to this introduction, I think of my parents. And if my father was here, he wouldn't believe it, but my mother would be proud. <laughs> so thank you for that. And thank you very much for having me in this, uh, in this beautiful, beautiful location of the Bibliothèque Solvay. Uh, it's, uh, it's often the case that as economists we have to look what happens in the field, but we don't lift our heads sometimes for too long or not enough to look at the beauty of architecture. And I'm actually tempted by the architecture reference as I begin this speech. Um, may have to do with family. Uh, I have a son who is a young architect and who always reminds me that architecture is not about geometry. Architecture is not about symmetry. Architecture is about organizing space in order to foster relationships between individuals. And uh, I was actually tempted to also refer to uh, a very small architecture firm from Catalonia, uh, which was awarded the uh, Pritzker Prize uh, just recently. The Pritzker Prize, for those of you who are just economists and not really open to architecture, is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize um, for architecture. And that Catalonia firm was announced as the winner of the Pritzker Prize. And the president of the jury uh, said the following thing, which I believe is, is quite inspiring in the current international context that we are living and where cooperation is more than ever required. President of the jury said about them, more and more people fear that because of international influence, we will lose our local values, our local art, and our local customs. The prize winners, that small Catalonia firm, helped us to see that we can aspire to have both our roots firmly in place and our arms outstretched to the rest of the world. And I think that you can actually draw uh, that particular reference to having roots uh, in your place and arms outstretched around the world uh, to economic policies. We're clearly being concerned with the global economy as, as we are and have to be at the IMF. We must be inspired by this statement and understand that we are at a moment when the global economy, the global economy actually needs both those strong domestic policies combined with a steadfast commitment to international cooperation. And this, it's that concept of deeply rooted domestic policies with the international cooperation that will actually help us towards a better global economy. What I would like to do this, mo this, this uh, morning is give you a quick uh, view of the uh, mid-term outlook, if you will, without disclosing any particular number because that will happen in the course of next week when we have the spring meeting and that the 
world economic outlook is actually uh, delivered by our chief economist and, uh, and the team. But I would like to give you a little um, gist of uh, what it's, uh, it's going to be. So the good news overall, and we go back to the good, not so good, uh, that you mentioned, Jean-Claude, is that after six years of disappointing growth, the world economy is gaining momentum as a cyclical recovery holds up the promise of more jobs, higher incomes, and greater prosperity going forward. That's the good part of the news. The not good part of the news is that just as we see this momentum unfolding, we also see, at least in most of the advanced economies, doubts about the benefits of economic integration, about the very architecture that has underpinned the world economy for more than seven decades now. And these, these issues, you know, this momentum which is picking up, which for some of us will be a reminder of the 2011 green shoots celebrated a little bit too early as they became brown too quickly. Those, that momentum of, of 2017 and this uncertainty, this doubt that looms on the horizon and comes to the fore in terms of political responses. That will be on the mind of the 189 finance ministers and governors of central banks that will uh, gather next week in Washington at the time of the spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. And they will assess together uh, the state of the global economy. And as usual, we will release our numbers then. But before that, let me just touch on very quickly uh, the groups of economies that will actually hopefully continue to sustain that momentum that has really started in mid-2016. So for advanced economies, uh, the outlook has improved with stronger manufacturing activity. And it's an upswing that is broad-based across countries that has clearly been emphasized uh, in the United States of America and certainly amplified uh, as a result of market perception and maybe that unleashing of some sort of animal spirits that has been generated by recent developments, at least at market levels. Notwithstanding that momentum that is rather broad-based, we still have countries in that group of advanced economies that are facing high debt and weaknesses in some of their banks and in some of their corporates, and I'll come back to that later in my remarks. As far as the emerging and developing countries are concerned, uh, their current situation bodes rather well for global growth, and we believe that they will continue to deliver probably about, uh, if not more than three quarters of global growth in 2017. And we believe that that movement that I have just indicated will persist in 2018. In the meantime, slightly higher commodity prices pretty much across the board, with the exception of cocoa probably, uh, has brought uh, relief to many low-income countries. But these economies still face today difficult challenges including revenue levels that are proje projected to stay well below the boom years and which will require a serious adjustment at effort on their part, both in terms of fiscal policies and in terms of diversification of their economies. 
So putting all this together, we see a, a global economy that has uh, a spring in its step, uh, benefiting from sound policy choices in many countries in the most recent years. But as all economists will know, it's not just about what we see, but it's about what we fear. And I would like to, at the same time, identify for you some of the downside risks that we will be debating next week. Political uncertainty, including at the center of Europe. I'm here referring to various elections that are coming up. I'm referring to Brexit and the terms under which it will be negotiated. The sword of protectionism, which is hanging over global trade and tighter global financial conditions that could trigger disruptive capital outflows from emerging to developing economies, a phenomenon that we have not seen yet. And underneath those short-term issues lies something which is far more entrenched and quite mysterious, over which we have just recently done quite a lot of thorough analysis and recently published as well, is this weak productivity trend that continues to be a severe drag on strong and inclusive growth as we would like it. This phenomenon is not just a post-financial crisis phenomenon, as most of you know, I'm sure. It had been with us before the financial crisis. It has been emphasized and accelerated as a result of the financial crisis. But it is largely because of more structural um, phenomenon. Certainly the uh, aging of population, not only in advanced economies, but in some of the largest emerging countries as well, the slowdown in trade and weak private investment, those phenomena being accelerated since the financial crisis, the legacies of which have actually weighed on those three more uh, secular phenomena. Our estimate is that if productivity growth had followed its pre-2008 uh, crisis trend, overall GDP in advanced economies would be about 5% higher today. So same trends of um, productivity growth would result today in adding to the global economy a GDP roughly equal or slightly superior actually to Germany. That's having another Germany in terms of economy output. So these risks that I have not detailed, because we could go into um, you know, much longer discussions about the nature of those risks, uh, actually leads us to the conclusion that there can be no complacency and that the policies, the policy mix and the policies that have been adopted in the last few years, which have led to that cyclical recovery that we're observing at the moment, should certainly not be wasted. And that's what I mean, the policy of no self-inflicted wounds. Now, how do we do that? I see three dimensions of economic policies that will actually avoid uh, this risk. First, supporting growth with an emphasis on productivity. Second, sharing the benefits of that growth more equitably to avoid the excessive inequality which we have most recently uh, identified as not compatible with sustainable growth. And third, cooperating across borders 
through a multilateral framework that has uh, helped us in the last 70 years. And that clearly will be the three themes that I would like to develop uh, with you this morning. The first dimension is to maintain the current growth momentum. And to that end, what we are recommending is to continue what we have called the three-pronged approach, which consists of the right mix of fiscal policy, monetary policy, and structural reforms that will all have to be tailored to the specificity of each and every country. No one size fits all, but particular attention paid to each and every country's circumstances in order to determine the mix of those three prongs. For example, in a number of economies, demand is still weak and inflation is not yet durably back to target. And that calls for continued accommodative uh, monetary policy and a greater emphasis on growth-friendly fiscal policies, revamping tax and benefit system to improve incentives and boosting high-quality infrastructure investment in countries that have the room to budget for those investments. These measures should be combined with structural reforms to lift potential growth. And here in the euro area, for instance, it's a good example of what kind of structural reforms could help. You, I'm sure you've heard at nauseum the reference to structural reforms. But there are, in the euro area, European directives that exist that would actually facilitate the unleashing of the economic forces that are simply not properly enforced. And whatever relates to the opening up of professional services, the lowering of barriers to entry in retail should actually be implemented. More fundamentally, policymakers need to reinvigorate productivity. And over the long term, that is certainly the most important source of higher income and rising living standards. Productivity is a loaded word. So how, what can governments do to actually boost productivity? Again, if there was a magic formula, we would all know it and we would not be asking ourselves the questions. But it's probably safe to argue that governments should start by fostering innovation. And that includes investing in more education, better infrastructure, and providing the tax incentives for research and development. For those who despair about research and development, our fiscal affairs department has done a very thorough study of various tax credit systems around the world to identify whether or not those tax credit systems work in order to support and encourage R&D. And the conclusion is, uh, without any uh, qualification, yes, they do. Again, uh, our analysis shows that if advanced economies increased R&D by 40%, it's a big one, I agree. But if that was the case, they could increase again their GDP in by 5% in the long term. I'm here talking just about the advanced economies. But just as we need more innovation in order to support and encourage productivity, we also need more, not less, trade. Why is that? Because trade promotes innovation sharing and encourages firms to invest in new technologies 
and more efficient business practices. That is not just a phenomenon that benefits the advanced economies or not a phenomenon that benefits only the exporters. It provides benefits across pretty much all countries. For example, we, st we estimate that China's integration into the global trading system accounted for as much as 10% of the average overall productivity increase in advanced economies between the mid-90s and the mid-2000. Interesting, at a time when the role of China is often depicted without much facts and figures that would accurately describe not only the hundreds of millions of people who have been lifted out of poverty as a result of that trade, but also the benefits that spill over to the advanced economies too. Enormous gains like that uh, translate over time into higher living standards. Today, billions of people around the world, including of course in some of those emerging market economies, but elsewhere too, billions of people enjoy longer, healthier, and more prosperous lives, largely because of our ability to harness the power of trade and innovation leading to productivity gains. Now, I've just talked about the benefits of trade, and I want to mention that we are not goody-goody uh, about trade. And we know that trade also uh, brings uh, with it its negative side effects, from job losses in shrinking sectors to social challenges in those communities and regions that have been left behind by structural changes. One caveat though, these losses, those negative side effects are not just the result of trade. And again, we are publishing um, right around this time, a very good study that tries to identify where those losses and where those shrinking uh, factors come from and what has created them. And in advanced economies, it is definitely the case that technology breakthrough innovations have been the predominant cause of such negative effects and not trade. Trade has played its role as well, but not as a dominant factor. So that brings me to the second policy dimension that I wanted to discuss, which is the concept of inclusive growth. What do we mean by inclusive growth? It's one of those loaded words as well, and everybody will have their definition of inclusiveness as everybody will have their definition of fairness. But to put it simply, when the benefits of growth are shared more broadly, growth is stronger, more durable, more sustainable, and more resilient. Now you might ask, if, if it is so simple, and if we know this, why haven't countries undertaken to share economic benefits more widely? Why has inequality grown in many countries, not all, but in many countries in recent years? Well, think of technology. While it has brought enormous benefits to societies, as I just mentioned, we have found that technology actually has been the major factor behind the relative decline of lower and middle, middle class skilled workers and their incomes in recent years, with trade contributing to a much lesser income. It's not exactly the same conclusion for the emerging and developing countries. 
And they are concerned that automation, whatever form it takes, uh, robot, to put it simply, will progressively jeopardize employment growth, not just in advanced economies, but in emerging and developing countries as well. There are hundreds of thousands of jobs in the textile industry that has developed over time in countries like Bangladesh, for instance, that are on the line because of automation uh, developing. So when economic winds shift, we must find better ways of supporting workers. And again, just like uh, for productivity, there is no magic formula, but we know that there are certain elements, certain policies and investment that will actually work. And it's demonstrated by certain countries. Emphasis on retraining and vocational training, job search assistance and relocation support can help those affected by labor market dislocations. The United States, for instance, could focus more on well-designed assistance for job search and job matching, including through online tools. Emerging economies could also design technological solutions such as advertising job openings through personalized text messages on mobile phones. And I'm not giving those examples because we're making them up. I'm giving those examples because we have actually seen them at work and efficient in some of the countries uh, that we um, cooperate, partner with, and audit on an annual basis. So looking ahead, all governments need to do more to help citizens prepare for major technological advances. Now you can be on one side or the other side of um, this fourth uh, industrial revolution. Some will argue that there is no such a thing. Professor Gordon is very explicit on that point. Since electricity and a couple of other inventions of the 20th century, there has not really been any major innovation that has unleashed massive progress that has given rise to productivity gains. Others are on the other side of that debate. And uh, McAfee, for instance, um, I will quote him, uh, because I'm, I'm probably more like, having had the benefit of the washing machine, uh, too, I'm more on his side. He says, the key to winning the race is not to compete against machines, but to compete with machines. And there are some fascinating developments at the moment uh, as to how artificial intelligence can actually be embedded in human creativity, in human intelligence, in order to enhance it, not in order to compete with it. Now that doesn't happen um, randomly, and it requires a, a long commitment uh, to learning, to training. And I would mention one country as an example that has actually implemented and developed such a system, and that is Singapore. Singapore offers training grants to any employee throughout their life. So at any point in time, if they are unemployed for whatever reasons uh, of their own volition or otherwise, they are entitled to a grant, not a loan, a grant in order to secure yet more training and reskill or, 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 or vary the course of their professional life. We at the IMF, we try to uh, help uh, policymakers upgrade their expertise um, with practical tools. Um, I'm just wondering how many of you 
have actually taken any of our courses online? Please raise your hand. There is one person, two person, three person, four, five. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being innovators and pioneers because we do provide um, public finance management. We do provide debt sustainability analysis courses. We do provide a variety of courses in different languages as well, uh, which are available for free online to officials from any country in the world that can access those courses. And we have a system by which you can actually validate such training and be qualified in uh, that variety of courses. And we take great pride in the fact that 17,000 officials and students as well, because it's not restricted to officials from any particular treasury department or central banks. 17,000 around the world have actually now graduated uh, from those online training courses, and they come from 185 different countries. And we will keep at it. So I hope when I give my, my next speech at the Librairie Solvay, there'll be many more hands up to say, yes, we have done it too. Still on this issue of uh, inclusiveness, on this issue of excessive inequality, of this, on this issue of burden sharing. In countries where population ages and where the workforce shrinks eventually, there is also a sense that today's policies should not be at the cost of future generations who would be left to pay for the imprudent actions of today's generation. And that includes all sorts of things, not just debt, and I'll come to that, but a damaged environment, a dilapidated infrastructure that is not maintained properly, and obviously high public debt that can be fueled by irresponsible public finance management or those pension schemes that are not well thought through and will eventually be the burden of next generations. So today, average public debt in advanced economies is at a post-war high, at 108% debt to GDP. So we need strong fiscal policy frameworks and greater efforts to bring public debt back to a safe level, in particular, in those aging societies. And again, the impact of aging societies, especially through pension systems and healthcare costs, is not just an advanced economy problem. Many emerging economies also need to make their system safe for the next generation. I'm here clearly thinking of China. My third point is also a simple one. In our hyper-connected world, national policies, those that keep us firmly rooted in our place, tend to not only affect our domestic um, area, but they have spillover effects. And we have seen that um, massively during the financial crisis. So figuratively, we are all sitting on the same boat and policies decided elsewhere will have an impact on us. Which is why we need to encourage countries to support strong international cooperation. For more than 70 years, the Bretton Woods system with its systems of rules, shared principles and institution has been at the center of this international cooperative effort. 
John Maynard Keynes, one of the IMF's chief architects, called it that bigger thing we are bringing to birth. And it is a prime example of the international cooperation that has underpinned a phenomenal rise in incomes and living standards around the world. That belief that organizing by rules and by consent economic movements was actually better than enter into any kind of war. More recently, we worked together and uh, Jean-Claude and I have vivid memories of those days and those nights, but we have worked together in a very cooperative fashion, including and in particular within the circle of the IMF that brings all countries together, 189 of them, in order to avoid that the big recession that we had in 2008 turn into a big depression, which was eventually avoided. And that was done largely through multilateral efforts undertaken between central bankers, between finance ministers, and with the circle of all those around the table. But fostering more resilient growth requires more international cooperation, not less. Why is this needed? That cooperation is badly needed in order to reduce external imbalances. And it is crucially important because unsustainable policies in one country can impact others. Cooperation also means working together to ensure that countries observe a level playing field, therefore avoiding equally the protective measures that is called protectionism, as well as the distortive policies that give rise to competitive advantage that is not fully justified by the actual fundamentals of those transactions or those economies. As I said, restricting trade would be a self-inflicted wound that would disrupt supply chains, hurt global output, and inflate the price of production materials and consumer goods. And the first that would fall victim to that risk would be actually the lower middle class consumers who tend to consume most of their income. We also need to cooperate to ensure financial stability, including a stronger global financial safety net to help emerging and developing countries better cope with capital flow volatility in time of distress. We will be proposing some potentially uh, innovative instrument in order to address that particular situation. Financial stability requires that the reform of the global financial regulation initiated uh, in under the leadership of uh, Jean-Claude Trichet uh, back in 2008 be actually completed. These rules, especially on bank equity, liquidity and leverage have made the financial system safer and have made taxpayers safer as well, since they are likely, less likely to be on the hook to actually secure the stability of the financial system. More needs to be done and that reform needs to be completed. Now there is further work that needs to be done and that we have been engaged in more recently and that is fighting money laundering, fighting the financing of terrorism and uh, wherever we find it and wherever we can address it, fighting corruption as well. 
in the same vein, together with other international institutions, such as the World Bank, the OECD, and the UN, we're also lending our hand in order to fight tax evasion. Last but not least, we need to work together to accelerate gains in living standards where needs are the greatest. And clearly, we cannot rest on the laurels of 2015 when the, sustain, the Sustainable Development Goals were agreed upon. We need to make sure that, it is that they are actually implemented and that the 17 principles that have been identified in order to better serve the global economy and particularly the least developed countries are actually um, put to work. Standing together is essential in the face of global challenges such as the refugees, such as the humanitarian crisis that we see developing in dramatic circumstances in the eastern part of Africa at the moment, but also in the face of natural disasters uh, caused by climate change. Now, as you know, the le cœur du métier, la raison d'être, of the IMF is to foster such international cooperation. We continue to discharge our key mission, but I think we do it in a slightly different way. We are using all the leverage available under technological changes to customize as much as we can the category of services that we render to the international community, whether it's in the form of bilateral and multilateral surveillance and policy advice, whether it's in the form of technical assistance and capacity building development, or whether it's in the form of uh, lending uh, in countries in, in disarray. As I said, this is our bread and butter work. We've been doing it, but it is evolving over time. And what was regarded as macrocritical has certainly expanded uh, lately to the point that there are areas uh, that would seem very incongruous to some old timers if they were to come back to the institution, such as the role of gender and how the contribution of women to the economy is not only a moral imperative, but is also macro-critical and can make a huge difference in many of our economies. Or why inequality and excessive inequality can actually be a main obstacle to sustainable growth in the world. Or how the poor and bad use of fiscal resources in order to subsidize fossil fuel subsidies should be avoided. So I've tried to identify those three dimensions which we believe are necessary going forward in order to sustain the momentum that we have seen. The three-pronged approach, fiscal, monetary, fiscal, on a very tailored basis, on a country-by-country -country basis. The necessity to include and to provide the opportunities that will seize on the productivity gains to be had in order to increase the size of the economy and better allocate its benefits. And third, the international dimension, which calls for cooperation amongst the nations. Now, let me come back to architecture by way of closing. And I'll go back, way back, to the great, thanks to my son, the great Roman architect, Vitruvius. He referred to three key principles that architecture should um, abide by. First one is durability. It should stand up robustly and remain in good condition. 
Sustainability is quite similar to durability. Utility should be useful and function well for the people using it. It's a combination of the inclusiveness and the productivity. And beauty. It should delight people and raise their spirit. Maybe one day I will be talking about a new way of calculating the size of our economy. And in addition to talking about this famous GDP, we will talk about happiness and maybe beauty. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Madame Lagarde, Christine, uh, for this very inspiring speech, uh, which covered really a lot of ground, a lot of ground that we can discuss here. And I will also give uh, a chance to the audience to, to ask questions later on. But perhaps to kickstart the discussion, let me um, reflect on two or three points that, that you, you made. And I, and I think the first one is really you talked a lot about um, the risk and uh, the the feeling by some that feel left behind and that you know do not uh, think that integration um, is to their benefit, nor do they think that technological change is to their benefit. And you talked a lot that we have to address about address this issue and you know think about what can be done uh, to to address uh, address this issue. Now we've seen. Um, already a few elections where voters essentially have said, in particular in the United States, well, the way the current political class is addressing this is not enough. I mean, we don't believe that this is enough. And instead, um, we vote for um, someone by, like the US president who promises a different uh, recipe, a recipe based on protectionism, based on uh, perhaps even slashing the welfare state, but protecting the, the domestic economy through, through basically tariffs uh, or other things. I mean, that's at least what, what, what he has been promising and discussing and being tough on China, obviously. And so, so I think the contrast is a bit the European Union where um, we, of course, uh, have a very strong welfare state, much stronger than, than the welfare state in the United States. Um, and where still that doubt is there. And so, so I guess my question is to you, uh, how much more do we need to do really? I mean, um, is it enough what um, existing political parties put on the table? And I if I may, your, your suggestions, better education, I mean, it sounds in some respects a bit like the old recipes. I mean, don't we have to go uh, a bit further and have do a step change in addressing the concerns of those citizens? As I said, if there was a magic recipe, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. Uh, and, and it's one that we have lived with because, you know, when, when I was curious to see uh, for how long we have been preoccupied by those transformation of our economies as a result of either technological changes or uh, modification of the supply chains. And, and we have had that for a long time. The first agency that was set up in an advanced economy uh, to actually address the issue of retraining and, and uh, softening the burden of those who were left out uh, was set up in, uh, in 1962 uh, in the US. So it's, it's not a recent phenomenon. It's, it's one that has certainly been amplified and the perception of which is much stronger. 
uh, amplified as a result of this um, relatively long period of slower growth, which clearly makes everything uh, more difficult, uh, which allows for less redistribution, especially when you, you, you think in terms of net growth. But that explanation would not be in and of itself enough, because when we look at the recent phenomenon of sort of rejection of the established uh, principles, rules, and, and uh, solutions, the UK, for instance, or the US, those are two advanced economies where growth has not been that bad, actually, compared with the rest of, of them. But it's also um, not for the UK, actually, because inequality has, has um, plateaued and, and slightly uh, reduced over the course of the last few years. But certainly in the United States, uh, you have had a, a significant increase of inequalities. And that probably um, compounded with that slower growth than previously uh, has, has certainly amplified that feeling of exclusion as opposed to inclusion uh, in, the, in the US population. I think when you, you need to go micro as well. You can't just look at things on, on, a, on a macro uh, basis. But when you look at a, at a sub national or sub-aggregate numbers level, you see that a lot of those falling uh, prey to those restructural, to those restructuring and those uh, technological uh, innovation consequences are generally concentrated in certain areas. And whether in the US it's the Appalachian, uh, today it will be Wyoming tomorrow, and, and there will be other places in the world that, you know, I was mentioning the textile sector in Bangladesh, for instance, in some, some regions there. So it, it requires those sort of broad-based um, programs of education, training, uh, retooling, uh, but it also requires to go more granular. And uh, we have looked, for instance, at two areas that are a particular break on uh, workers' mobility, which would be one of the responses to the, to the, the sentiment of being left out. And the first one is housing, because you have generally this sort of vicious cycle where people live in an area that is affected by structural uh, changes, lose their job, the area becomes less popular, uh, prices of housing goes down, people had a mortgage, and very quickly they are, quote-unquote, underwater, the house is no longer sellable, the banks will uh, foreclose. So housing uh, particular policies in order to uh, alleviate um, uh, that burden are, are necessary. And second, the... Uh, the, the health benefits, which in many advanced economies uh, follow the employment situation, and, and a little bit more time after that, uh, but not much more. So, yes, it is. It sounds like uh, old tricks, but it it has to learn from the old tricks, elaborate, go further and deeper. Um, you know, we need to look at, at what other countries have done. Um, certainly, the Singapore system that I was referring to is is, is a very uh, interesting one albeit, you know, small scale, probably much easier to implement, particularly in a very wealthy economy as, as, as is Singapore on a per capita basis. If you look at the, uh, the flex security system that has been implemented in, the, in Denmark, you have something very different, uh, and yet that is quite effective as well, which is a combination of uh, three components. One is, well, four, I would say. The and that's th that one is not often mentioned. The requirement in any circumstances of a long notice period so that people can actually prepare for the change. Second, uh, the flexibility in the sense that employers can um, readily, subject to that notice, hire and fire. But it's combined with two things which are equally important, 
a fairly generous unemployment benefit system coupled with um, active policy, um, I mean, labor market policies that require uh, the people to actually go and seek out uh, new jobs. And it's the combination of those four that actually produces uh, the sentiment that those affected by changes are not just left to drift on their own uh, with a declining uh, value of housing, no benefits and no support. You could add to that um, other things as well. Uh, clearly, a better redistribution system can be envisaged as well, so that the, the excessive inequalities that I have mentioned earlier on are addressed through that redistrib those redistribution mechanisms. For instance, in, in the case of the US, we have um, now for at least three years recommended in our Article 4, which is the annual uh, review of the US economy, that um, minimum salaries be increased and that the earned income tax credit be not only maintained by, by but but uh, improved and increased in terms of, of volume so those are those are uh, you know mechanisms that uh, that can can be used i w i should mention because i was just right. in, in in germany and i discussed that with the german authorities the the dual educational system that is used in in germany in order for uh, both the employee and the employers through generally a, a, a good co-determination system uh, via the, uh, the unions that actually allows for that regular um, training uh, both on the job and, and through uh, educational systems. Okay, um, perhaps um, since we discussed risks, uh, you talked about the risk um, to the global economy coming from the rise of protectionism, um, populist uh, political risks. But I noted when you talked about the risks, you did not mention China at all. And uh, I wanted to, to raise an issue uh, that is not European before we can come to the audience that I'm sure we'll have many questions on, uh, on the European economy, on uh, on, uh, on Greece and so on, um, but, but really let me, let me ask you um, first this question on China. Um, you mentioned China as a driver of global productivity growth, um, but of course that's not the way many, many would see it. Um, and um, I think the prism of protectionism of course has to do something, something with China, but since you, since you are a macro financial, representing a macro financial institution, I really wanted to ask you also about the macro potential macro-financial risks uh, coming out of China. China, country with a lot of debt by now, uh, with a very big financial system, uh, shadow financial system also, um, with um, relatively slow progress on, on reforms um, as regards state-owned enterprises. I mean, don't you see this as, as one of the risks we should be talking about next week in, in, in Washington? Perhaps it was a deliberate omission in the, in the speech. Uh, or how do you see the transformation of the Chinese economy uh, and its implications for the global economy? Well, first of all, I would, I would observe that um, China has undergone already a massive transition. Uh, when you look at the current account of China, uh, seven, eight years ago, and you look at the current account of China today, it's just a massive uh, reduction from, you know, eight to nine percent, nine percent um, to two-ish uh, at the moment. So, coupled with that, and, and to actually support that significant transition, uh, China has been moving and is in the process of moving 
uh, from uh, a very sort of export-oriented to a much more consumer-based, uh, from a very um, highly driven, from a growth that was highly driven by investment to an economy that is more geared towards consumption. Um, and it's a process, it's not something that happens overnight, and we are seeing it in the numbers, gradually. Uh, consumption uh, rising, investment declining a little bit, uh, not, not enough based on the recommendations that uh, we would like to see uh, enforced. But China is also, it's not just a big economy, it's a political system that operates according to its own cycle. And as you know, we are uh, pre uh, next October when the, uh, the, the, the major uh, convention or Congress will take place. Um, before such time, will we see major changes? Probably not. Will we see the continuation of the current um, series of reforms that are underway? Uh, probably so. Um, will it transform the state-owned enterprises massively overnight? Probably not. Uh, are we seeing a, a, a gradual reduction of production in, in the steel industry, in the coal industry? Yes, it is happening. Uh, what clearly is also at stake is what you mentioned, which is the, um, the financial sector of China. And the fact that the, uh, the shadow banking, large portion of which is under state control, uh, but not under supervision as it should be, is growing much faster than uh, the uh, controlled and supervised uh, financial sector uh, by the clip of about 30% per year. So that, that's, that's a, a, a real uh, concern. And uh, one over which clearly um, the central authorities are trying uh, to control and to, uh, to address and, and to remedy. We believe that as long as they are uh, very aware of it, which they are, uh, determined to address it in their own way at their own course, and given the volume of ammunitions that they have available, uh, it's, it's a, it's a mechanism that should follow its course without major disruption on the uh, on the um, on the economies. Okay, uh, I think we can uh, start um, opening up to the audience, and uh, please raise your hands uh, if you want to speak. And I see that uh, Bruegel's deputy director Maria de Merces uh, wants to ask the first question. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Gunchan. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Lagarde, for a very interesting uh, speech. Indeed, I would like to uh, come back to the issue of risks that we're facing here in Europe. You did mention that in your speech, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. What, in your view, are the main risks, political or otherwise? But more importantly, uh, how should we address them? How should we prepare for these risks? So if you could make a priority list, what would be the two top items in your priority list to ensure that the, and here I may use your metaphor, ensure the durability of the EMU architecture? Thank you. Okay, you know, I might uh, contain my response to the economic and financial considerations because I think that there is a whole uh, political and geopolitical dimension which has electoral components over which I have no bearing other than my, my vote when, it, when the time comes. Uh, but I'm not going to comment on that, particularly the upcoming ones. If I look at the, the overall sort of economic and financial situation, I would say that um, the job that has uh, been initiated needs to be completed. 
And that applies across the board to um, the European construction, particularly the Euro area, where it's a um, beautiful mission but not yet completed and where more needs to be done at some stage. I know that now is not the time. It's, it's too, um, uh, too difficult a topic in that period of, of elections to actually go into the, the depth of it at the national level because it has to be discussed and debated at the, at the domestic level and not just in, in closed elitist circles. Um, but that needs to be completed. Um, I would say that the... I'm trying to find a word that is uh, politically correct here. Um, All right, I might use a word that is not politically correct. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> okay. Um, the perfect sanitation of the financial sector right. in some corners of Europe, particularly in Southern Europe, should be completed. I know that reforms have been undertaken. I know that global CPs, as I used to call them until they changed the abbreviations recently, uh, are, are, are probably uh, fine, safe, properly recapitalized. But it's not the case for the entire banking sector. And that job needs to be completed um, at the sub-CP uh, level. Um, and I believe that the percentage of non-performing loans that still sits on the balance sheets of some of the banks in some of those southern European countries is a burden on the unleashing of economic potential and the facilitation of investment. Uh, I also believe that... Um, you know, it's a bit of the former lawyer who talks through me uh, as head of the IMF, but I believe that a sound, at least at domestic levels, and as harmonized as possible bankruptcy regime with a quick mediation mechanism to deal with uh, corporate entities that are plagued with uh, either excessive liabilities or themselves, you know, um, strange portfolios of, of assets and liabilities, that should be in place so that we don't have economies that are burdened by zombie corporates that are just hanging there, uh, either because they had to go through um, fire sale uh, of their assets at the time of the crisis and are left with little capacity and, and, and with no ability to invest, or because they're just keeping assets on their books that are just not properly depreciated. I don't want to go into too much details, but I think on those two accounts, it shouldn't be such a huge effort. Uh, it should be an effort of transparency, which is often difficult in, in, in some corners. Well, I think the last point certainly is, is music to our ears. Um, since we've written a lot about um, the need to clean up the banking system as a, as a precondition to, to revive growth, and also Maria has written about non-performing loans uh, quite, quite a bit, um, uh, and certainly has identified this as, as one of the key subjects. So let me take perhaps now two or three questions. And so uh, I will uh, give the floor to Philippe Lespinard of Schröders and then uh, André Zafir and, uh, uh, well, and then, okay, Philippe, you start. We can Great. Ma Madame Lagarde, um, uh, thank you for, for your remarks. Um, could you comment on the progress you see in Greece? Um, because you've provided lots of technical assistance, uh, a huge amount of advice. Um, and embarrassingly, I'm afraid uh, even your team says that the situation seems to not resolve itself and, and is possibly getting worse. And certainly sustainability or durability um, is uh, out of reach 
Um, so without, uh, you know, it, it is a little bit of a worry for, for all of us because we see your, your institution's credibility uh, and, and political capital be, being eroded by this situation. And uh, we can't really understand what you're still doing there. So we'd like your comments on this, please. So, so we collect, I see, on Andre Zapier, um, a senior fellow at Bruegel, and then I will also give the floor. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, presentation. You mentioned that the uh, level of public debt in the advanced economies uh, is today at a record high level, uh, comparable to what we had immediately after World War II. Uh, now, if we look at the situation then, uh, immediately after World War II and today, uh, I see uh, two major differences in the environment. Uh, so, same level of public debt, but then we were uh, on the verge of very rapid growth, uh, very rapid nominal uh, GDP growth. I mean, after all, uh, in the period of 30 years after World War II, we had in the advanced economies roughly uh, 8 to 10 percent uh, nominal uh, GDP growth, uh, 4 percent uh, inflation, 4 percent uh, real growth. Now today, uh, we would be very happy uh, to reach 4% uh, nominal growth. And at the same time, uh, private debt levels are also extremely high today, which they were not then. So what is your view about how uh, the world economy, and in particular the advanced economies, uh, can resolve this uh, debt problem in the next 10, 20 years? Thank you, and then the gentleman here with him. Thank you very much. Uh, Bode Elmas from UADAT, the European Network on Debt and Development. Uh, you asked yourself the question in the presentation, why has inequality risen? And as you know, we are watching um, IMF-supported programs for, for many, many years, and we had the impression that conditionality in IMF-supported programs has a huge impact on inequality in the past, um, primarily negatively. So my question would be, how should conditionality be designed in future so that a country arises less unequal from a crisis than it was when it entered. Thank you. Yeah, I think we, we start with all three that are all three not, not very easy, so please. <laughs> That's to say the least. Um, I think the mo I'll start with the most difficult one because I, I don't think that you know, any of us has the answer. Um, um, the, the, the question by Professor uh, Sapir about debt and this, um, you know, 108 debt to 8% debt to GDP ratio on average in advanced economies, which is, as you said, you know, uh, the highest since the, um, the post Second World War period with two different attributes. You know, th th there are options that we can all think of and which are all undesirable. Um, you can have another war that's clearly of the chart and not in my option. Um, you could have a massive uh, debt restructuring that would cut across uh, all advanced economies and who knows where the chips would fall and then what, what kind of, of uh, uh, mess that would create. Uh, I don't think it's an option either. I know some people contend that it, it might be considered, we, uh, we don't. Um, then there is the option that is considered by some economists uh, that depending on the structure of the debt and the holders of the debt uh, and the maturity of the debt, all of that maybe is not that bad. 
and the sort of 60% uh, concept that we have had for uh, many years as the point of reference to what is sustainable and, and will actually um, continue to foster growth going forward, maybe that's a delusion and we have to revisit those numbers. Um, I think we'll, we'll leave that category of economists to, to um, elicit further and, and demonstrate uh, their points. The fourth one, which is not necessarily um, you know, the sort of attractive, exciting, glamorous solution, is the laborious one, uh, which consists of um, identifying a long-term path uh, which will lead to a decline of, uh, of that global debt. And I, wouldn't, I think you are right in mentioning the two phenomena, which is the global sovereign, uh, I mean the sovereign debt and the corporate, uh, corporate and households, but predominantly uh, corporate. That, that combined are really weighing on societies and how that path can actually be um, reached and adhered to through a, you know, a good fiscal policies uh, over the course of time. And that's where I think that you know, the work that we are doing at the moment uh, at the IMF can be of, of interest. Uh, we have been tasked by the, uh, by the board of the IMF uh, to actually identify the concept and the uh, application on a country-by-country -country basis of fiscal space. Because fiscal space can, can be all sorts of different things, and, and it's not necessarily, necessarily as simple as we would like to see it. So our teams of economists are, are doing that, are trying to, be, to show as much integrity and, and deference to societies and their cultures and their background and their history, because all of that matters as well, to see what you know, fiscal space is actually available. It, lead, it leads to hot debates, I can assure you, with some of those uh, sovereigns uh, authorities. But it's, it's a debate that we need to have because to simply think in terms of the fiscal space uh, or, or the fiscal policies is not going to be enough. And, and it has to be compounded um, by the uh, positioning in the growth cycle, uh, by the type of structural reforms that could actually facilitate uh, the expansion of growth, and, and it's all of that combined together that can actually lead to the, this trajectory that, that will be helpful. So that, that's where we are doing work at the moment. The um, second one on Greece. Um, you know, when I would love to claim victory um, on Greece, and I think everybody around the cradle of democracy, as we uh, is often referred, uh, Greece uh, would love to do that, but the first ones that should do it are the Greeks themselves because they are the ones um, and I'm here particularly thinking of uh, the lower the middle class the employees uh, of Greece uh, who are taking uh, the blunt of some of the reforms that have been conducted so far um, We all know the numbers we all know by how much um, the economy has shrunk uh, the number of Greek who have emigrated uh, to leave the country because they felt that there was no hope, uh, the level of unemployment and so on and so forth. Where we are at the moment uh, is a space where some, we call them parametric reforms because they will sustain the Greek economy over the course of time, have finally been agreed in terms of legislation now, implementation as soon as the conditions of growth are are consolidated in order to allow for those measures to be actually taken and to dent possibly on growth. And I'm referring he here to the reform of the pension scheme. And it's not 
you know, to those who say, oh, the IMF is asking for more austerity. No, we're not asking for more. We are asking that the 2016 reform that was decided and legislated be implemented. Nothing more than that, but no backtracking of what had been agreed. That's number one. And number two, an income tax reform that would actually increase the tax base of Greece in order to make sure that there is solid and sustainable source of revenue going forward. Now, this has now been um, agreed to and accepted by the, uh, the Greek authorities. And the next phase that we need to uh, enter in, and I'll, I'll come back to the we and why I'm saying we, um, is fine-tuning completion of those commitments, and the devil is always in the details, um, and, and we know that for a fact, and I've been uh, exposed to it for the last seven to eight years. Uh, and, and once that is done, uh, the discussion about the debt sustainability of Greece will have to be discussed, and we know that together with that, uh, debt restructuring uh, will be needed. The scope of which will be decided at the end of the programme, the modalities of which have to be decided uh, up front. And that leads me to the, what are we doing um, in relation to Greece? Um, the blessing and the um, curse of the IMF as an institution is that we are accountable to the membership. And we are to provide that public good, which is financial stability, through the th three business lines that we have technical assistance, surveillance, and lending. When a country which is a member of the institution says, I need your help, and I would like to please discuss the terms of a program with you, we don't leave the table, we have to do that. And it's up to the integrity and the, um, the economic expertise of, of our unbelievable staff to determine under what conditions we can actually commit international financing um, and the bulk of that financing. But however small or big it is, it will come with the kind of conditionalities that I have just uh, explained, and I'll come back to conditionalities in a minute, uh, which call for public finance management discipline leading to um, potential growth of that economy that will convince investors that yes, they can come back and invest in that particular country so that the uh, international lender that the IMF is can withdraw and eventually at the end of a cycle of three years generally be reimbursed. So that's the reason we are still um, offering support and help, um, elaborating under what terms we could possibly um, give some lending to the country. We're not there yet. Um, but what I've seen in the last few couple of weeks is heading in the right direction. We're only halfway through the discussion that uh, needs to be had. I hope that was clear enough, because you're clearly very familiar with the Greek situation. <laughs> um, now, how can conditionalities be designed in order to avoid uh, a worsening of inequalities? And that's a very uh, pertinent question. Because typically when, when we get involved as lenders, uh, we uh, are involved because either no policy was applied, the wrong policies were applied, and the public finance situation is, is in real trouble. And therefore, quite often, difficult decisions have to be made in order to restore the position. And there are not many routes to uh, re-establishing uh, a balance. You either uh, 
cut the spending uh, or you increase the revenue. And you do that over the course of time. And uh, regrettably or not, the IMF was designed in order to provide short-term, rapid financing so that quick, necessary measures mm. uh, be taken. So that puts us in, the, in that corner of operation. Now, there are multiple ways to cut spending. And you can identify the spending uh, that are not growth-friendly. And you can make sure that you focus the cuts on those areas that are not going to um, um, affect growth, at least not too much. Uh, there are multiple ways to design um, raising revenues, some that can be more growth-friendly, some that can be uh, worsening inequalities. But you also have to factor in uh, the ability and the effectivity of the measure. And I've heard uh, and I've had that discussion myself with the teams. You know, why do we often um, recommend a VAT system, for instance, or an increase of the VAT rates, because that is not particularly redistributional as a tax system. And, and you know, when you weigh the cost and benefit of the system and, and you factor in the necessity of rapid effectiveness, you come quickly to the conclusion that a degree of VAT and if there is such VAT, an, in an increase is going to be the most efficient if somehow in equal way of, of raising revenues. So while we do that, we're also now doing, um, not, not now, I mean, we've been doing that for a while, but we cert and certainly under, under my leadership, I insist that that be done. But we work on the social safety net that is available, particularly for the poorest in the population. And when I hear <coughs> you know, comments about the fact that uh, the IMF is, again, requiring a, a reform of the pension scheme. Well, we do that, but we typically ask that the, the, the small pensions be secured and protected, and that if there is a necessary reduction of the, um, the public finance cost of pension schemes, it affects the highest and not the smallest. It's not always what governments are prepared to do, I have to tell you. And we often have the discussion with governments where they will eventually concede that the middle or the high pensioners are those who support them uh, from an, 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 an electoral point of view. And that puts the onus on us to insist that the small pensioners be protected. It's often a difficult discussion that we have. Another example of you know, how conditionalities actually can uh, meet the rhetorics that we, um, that we have. No program uh, now, and that has been the case for the last uh, few programs. Now, Egypt is one, Jordan is one, Niger is one recently, and there will be more, where we don't focus on uh, measures that will actually help women um, be included in the economy. And that takes funny roots. Uh, when you look at the Egyptian program, for instance, you will see um, necessary funding of um, childcare um, benefits you will see also something that is not necessarily identified with facilitating um, uh, workforce um, integration of women, but improving the transportation system in Egypt and making sure that there is space th that is actually safe and secure for women to travel from home to work is one way to make sure that women can actually uh, safely consider taking a job. I've been too long, sorry. No, no, that's very generous. And I think if, if you maybe can have one or two or two more questions, um, even though we are already at the, at the end of the time, but I, I, and I, w I have to apologize to all those that I cannot give the floor, but uh, uh, there's Jim Brunson from the, from the Financial Times. 
Um, so we want to have at least one one journalist. Um, Thanks. Hi. And the lady yeah. there. Right, uh, so I'm Jim Brunston from the from the Financial Times in Brussels. Um, again, on on Greece, um, uh, unsurprisingly, I guess. Given that the clock is, is ticking towards the July deadline, is it pot for debt to, sorry, given that the, the clock is ticking towards the July deadline for Greece to make some, some fairly large debt repayments, is it possible just to explain a bit more what the IMF is looking for in terms of further details about the modalities of, of debt relief? Because that certainly seems to be a point of confusion among some euro area governments who say, well, we, we provided a lot of information about this in May last year. So, so what exactly does the IMF need to see more than what was available in May to, to come on board? Thank you. Okay, so then let's, let's take uh, one more. So there's the lady, the lady here. Good morning. Thank you, madam. Uh, I'm Anka Teleto from the European Trade Union Confederation. Um, concerning uh, Greece, um, could I have your, your assessment on the future investment increase? Uh, actually, in the European Trade Union Confederation, we are very much in favor of, of establishing a European Treasury, and we are really um, uh, in favor of, of encouraging investment in every member state. Of, uh, you, you, of course, uh, refer to member states that do have room of maneuver, but, but we see um, anyway that uh, future investment, that's the, uh, that's the future, rev future revenue. Uh, and also uh, concerning uh, issue that you raised uh, uh, on the fight against uh, tax avoidance, uh, do you foresee any reform uh, in that area increase? Uh, and then if you let me, um, on the inclusive, uh, inclusive growth, uh, I very much uh, valued you took this up, inclusive growth issue, but actually at the European Trade Union Confederation, uh, we of course uh, want to make the link between uh, uh, high uh, level of collective bargaining and, and low inequalities. And uh, actually, um, the OECD and uh, European Commission, oh, 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 sorry, uh, the uh, ILO and the European Commission also uh, see the positive uh, link between these two. So I would very much like to have your Th assessment. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you very much. You know, may, may, I, may I ask, uh, if I may? Uh, because I, I was looking for my pen, I couldn't find it, so I was distracted. What's your, la your last question? Uh, the role of unions and uh, yeah, the the uh, the link between collective bargaining and low level of inequality, uh, because the ILO and the European Commission raised that issue. Of course, I would have liked to have your views also about uh, about right. um, yeah. No, no, but we have to but we have time. to close. Thank Unfortunately, you, there were three questions from you actually, and one. So we have uh, almost four questions. So. So I think we I have to I have to uh, close now if I understand correctly. So please, uh, thank you. Um, question from the top-notch experts on Greece over there. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure you have in mind this uh, this May Eurogroup statement that referred to a variety <coughs> of um, um, debt restructuring uh, techniques. You know, I think that if and when we consider. Um, and if and when I, I, I put a program to the board of the IMF, it will have to comply with the rules of um, any and all program. There will not be, and I've said that repeatedly, there cannot be any specific case for any particular country. Uh, the only dimension that is probably particular to uh, any of the Eurozone countries that the monetary policy is decided at the regional level, and that gives it a, a particular favor. But that doesn't apply to the uh, restructuring techniques. So those techniques are mentioned in a sort of broad brush 
um, way, and there is a multiplicity of them. So clearly, in accordance with the rules, uh, in order to uh, design the, de the debt sustainability analysis that has to go with any debt proposed program, we need to have a combination of the fiscal targets going forward, including for the medium and long, long term, and then a choice of the techniques uh, with a, a degree of specificity that will be uh, sufficient for the board to understand what will be done and what is the level of commitment of those debt holders uh, to apply those modalities that will be identified. I think that's, that's what is, I hope it's clear enough. In other words, we cannot be in the generality of you know, having a range of things, but we need to have a, a specificity of, of techniques and, and um, the modalities of how they would apply. On the um, investment in Greece, there's nothing more that we would like to see. Uh, and, and in a way, it's the purpose of any uh, IMF program, is to restore the level of confidence so that investors look at a country and think for themselves, it's okay, I can invest in that country. Uh, I, I have no idea, and I confess my ignorance, about the amount and volume of investment under the Juncker plan that is actually directed to Greece uh, at the moment. I'm sure there is investment uh, to that effect, and I'm sure that there are European experts in the room that would actually say, yes, absolutely, I can see that. Um, there is an, uh, a privatization uh, agency that has been set up, which, which is likely to operate, which has identified the target, which is completely staffed as far as I know now, and which is looking forward to operationalizing at the level that is required in order to satisfy the objectives. I have to tell you that on that front, um, we had great hopes um, for these privatizations over the course of the last seven years. And I hope that with a bit of determination and competent people to deal with it, uh, it, it will move forward and it will attract investors um, to, to actually subscribe to, this, uh, to these privatizations. On your question about um, the link between uh, collective bargaining agreement and uh, reduced inequality. I think we also have done some work at the IMF and there is a, a staff discussion uh, paper that has been uh, published I think last summer actually uh, within our research department that demonstrates also uh, that, that level of correlation between, I think, I'm not sure it was about a CBA or whether it was the present, the active presence and involvement of unions. It was either or. I, I don't, we publish about 350 uh, staff discussion paper every year, so I can't remember of the two which one it was, but there was a clear correlation that was evidenced. I think the position um, there is the level of cooperation, integration, and effectiveness of those, collaborative, uh, those collective bargaining agreement so that they actually um, support reducing excessive inequalities, and typically that's what we see, and the level at which they become eventually uh, obstacles to the degree of um, um, flexibility, adaptability, uh, relation between um, uh, labor unit cost and productivity so that there is actually progress and, and not uh, hampering of the, uh, of the progress of the economies. That's the position we have.
Okay, thank you very much for this very inspiring speech and also for being so generous in your responses. I'm sure the debate will continue in the next weeks, but you have really set the scene. So please join me in thanking the Managing Director for...